Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Bees Tactical Podcast, where we try to get under the bonnet of all things tactical and statistical at Brentford. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined by my co-host David Anderson, Bees Tactical's pair of inverted wingers, the glory seekers cutting inside to shoot on our stronger feet from impossible angles, completely ignoring the hard work of overlapping fullbacks in better positions. David, how are you doing? <laughs> hey John, I'm really good, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm I'm good. It's uh, it's a nice day up here in the north. Everything's uh, going well. We're on the cusp of leaving lockdown, so yeah, things are looking pretty bright from where I'm seeing. Yeah, similar here. Uh, yeah, nice weather. Really looking forward to sort of a bit more freedom, but um, I've been quite lucky and not really been too locked down anyway, so uh, I can't complain. Mm. But um, mm. yeah, all good here too. So. Just to summarise what we're going to go through today, um, we are going to look at particularly November highlights and lowlights for Brentford. We're going to look at key games, tactical issues and some of the underlying numbers behind the bees. Um, I think the best place to begin then is just uh, a summary. How do you feel about November as a whole? How do you feel as though it went? It's uh, It seems only a few weeks ago that we spoke and um, it's it's been quite an interesting month since then. Yeah, it's been incredible, hasn't it? How fast um, things are going around. Yeah, as a month overall, I think it's um, I think it's been an okay month. I, I think the last game against QPR has probably made it feel better than it was, um, finishing on a big high and uh, a bit of recency bias there. So a big win against a big rival probably papers over some craps. Um, but yeah, it's been a, it's been a really busy month. Another hugely condensed one. So we had a couple of games uh, in the beginning of the month, and then we cut off for the international break and then another three after that um yeah it's it the first the first part of the month felt quite stodgy we've got the draw against uh swansea which was a difficult game against a really strong team one one it probably could have been a loss actually a lucky offside call at the end and a few mistakes from other players but we got through that um pretty disappointed to be at home and sort of not seal the win but you have to sort of take these and uh, against the difficult side a point later on in the season might prove quite quite strong and then another draw as well straight after that against borough which was a really difficult game sort of borough going man for man so two low scoring draws which well and no scoring on the second um proving difficult and it, it, it kind of got the feeling of a really stodgy month and didn't really get going um low shots and sort of opposition that stifled us and then the international break came and um yeah, a little bit of a break and a bit of a breather, but it, it all just sort of comes back round so quickly. Uh, and then after the break, we had Wickham, which was another draw, um, sort of nil-nil draw and uh, probably Brentford's lowest point of the month. A really difficult, difficult display. Wickham were quite an interesting team, actually. They sort of play this high line and you think it's you think it should be crazy and it shouldn't work, but they condense the sort of middle areas of the pitch and then allow you to have it. And uh, you try and flick these balls over and nothing comes through and they just clear it again and... Um, it was just a really poor tactical display from Brentford, who in the end went sort of four four two and started lumping it up to to Force and Tony, which which didn't work and and looked pretty um pretty uneasy on the eye. And Brentford sort of didn't get a shot for about forty minutes in that game. So it was a really difficult sort of poor um, return from the international break, and you're feeling quite down about the month. And then uh, Barnsley comes up, and it's it's a bit of a breath of fresh air actually Barnsley um, came to press hard and Brentford improved a lot from the Wickham game and um, managed to sneak a, a late win uh, with um, with Marcondes back on the pitch 
and then take sort of take the confidence with that win into QPR and uh, QPR was um, a real tussle sort of the cliche game of two halves a difficult first half where QPR were well on top control every part of the game sort of possession um, the chances uh, the the sort of wide areas and then Frank makes the big changes and does what Frank does and wrestles the game back and Brentford end up winning 2-1 and it's um, it's sort of all all swings and roundabouts and it's all fun and in the end it's two wins and three draws and you're kind of looking at a much better month than you were midway through mm. yeah just looking at the the form table again and you came in at sixth um for november i seem to f- think that you came in sixth last season yeah last it was, sixth, well. well, it was very right? close wasn't it yeah mm. um and as you've mentioned it's um a tale of two halves for the month itself uh those three draws in a row and then two wins what do you think has changed at all between those three draws and then the the two wins is it just variance or is there actual concrete signs of uh, of development because obviously Brentford last season took a little while to get going um do you feel as though that's the same thing's happening again now I think there is something in that yeah Brentford are always sort of a slow starting team where um, sort of what's expected doesn't really match up with what's going on the pitch and and sort of a points and that doesn't transfer into points and goals so it's always with the churn of the season before and sort of the change it does take a while to get going um this period as well probably a little bit of variance um uh, a little bit of fatigue in the side sort of a small squad being pushed to its limits and uh there's something else which we're probably going to touch on as we go through the podcast but i think um emiliano, emiliano marcondes his name might crop up a little bit in this um in this episode uh he went off injured against swansea um in that moment, uh, sort of a lot of Brentford's creativity went off with him and he returned against Barnsley in the second half and um, Brentford managed to score again. So they went that entire period of sort of Marcondes going off uh, sort of over four hours of play for him coming back on without actually scoring a goal and um, expected goals were sort of quite low during that period as well. So it could be variance. Um, it could be sort of the team coming back together. But also I think missing an important player or someone who we're going to sort of try and prove is a little bit more important than people think throughout their period too. So just looking through um, transfer market, it, it appears as though you played, I've, I've not watched all the games, but it appears that you've played 4-3-3 most of the time. Um, and you mentioned the, the big tactical switch that um, Frank made in the most recent game against QPR was this shift to 3-4-3, um, doing the thing that Frank does. Um, I was interested in hearing your thoughts on whether or not that might become a more permanent shift or do you think it was simply a uh, a game state thing that he decided in that particular moment it was good to shift to the 3-4-3 it's definitely his second system so we talk about sort of having a primary system and then a, a secondary system which you can use uh, sort of when when there's a sort of different problem to solve and I think he he likes to fall back on that 3-4-3 it's one that I'm anti I'd prefer to see something like a 3-5-2 but I, I do get why the principles of three four three are there. You still keep the three forward players. Um, you get an extra centre back in play, and uh, you can you can you can utilise sort of Rico Henry's pace down the left. So a lot of the similarities remain. You just give up sort of a lot of the central control. So I see why he's going with that because of the familiarity between the four three three and the three four three. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be the primary system. He's said in a number of interviews now that the. the the main system is the four three three, and that's when we we play best like that. We create enough like that, and uh, it suits our players. I think the second one is if there's a team like QPR who are so on top, dominating that sort of wide right wing area or the wing areas, you need to do something. And um, the the extra defender on the left centre back area added to a wing back, added to a a forward winger, that three down that side gives you much more control down the wing. So it's it's just him in game being quite smart and wrestling it back rather than him settling on a new system which will take us forward I think what also adds to this discussion is uh, the question about the roles of Rico Henry um, and Christian Dalsgaard Dalsgaard that's right isn't it yeah yeah Um, because obviously um, the games that I've watched this month I've seen it almost seems as though when you're playing the 4-3-3 you're almost playing like a a sort of asymmetrical 3-4-3 anyway with Rico mm. Henry pushing much further forward and Dalsgaard playing pretty much as an outside centre-back. Um, so I wondered if you had any thoughts on, on that as well. We've, we've got on the running order this question, is Rico Henry a left-back or, or is he an offensive wide progressor? And I think that's the big question, right? How, do, how are you using Rico Henry? If you are basically using him as a wing-back rather than as a, as a left-back, then you'll 
your four three three basically becomes a situational three four three in possession anyway. Yeah, it does. I think the starting positions. I, I guess that's what this is. It's a discussion on starting positions. It's where a player, it's where a player starts, and then who he has connecting with him on the inside. So I, I think Rico is. It's not as obvious when so when Brentford played the four three three, he starts off quite deep and then he he moves forward into a four position. I think when you play the wing back role. Um, he can start sort of a bit further ahead up the pitch and he's more involved in early build-up. So the, move, the ball move out to the wide, to the lad's back and um, it will just be funneled out to him quite quickly instead of it coming to him later when the team have had a chance to move up the pitch. So the situation, yes, is uh, sort of, it, it seems like it's similar in terms of uh, where they end up. But I think what goes on with the other players connecting with them and the movement up the field and also having a player like Mads on the ball in the deep left-back area instead of, say, mm. Josh De Silva or Rico Henry to begin with poses other problems as well in terms of ball progression and getting it forward so uh, it's he is yeah quite interestingly I definitely this um, the sort of roles and describing players by their roles and him being sort of an offensive wide progressor suits him but I'm not sure how much he I'm not sure whether he still stays as that as a wing back as a starting wing back his role kind of changed and he becomes more of a focal point in build up instead of actually progressing mm. the ball up the pitch mm. and he's playing a role that Dalsgaard isn't really playing this season like you're not seeing him get forward at all really or from what I've seen um, so I wondered if you if you you kind of think about the question differently comparing the two players in the full back positions against each other in terms of their roles yeah absolutely so Dalsgaard in these categories yeah we might send this out um, just so other people can have a look and I think some people will be quite familiar with these now, but um, looking at Dalsgaard and Henry, they're completely different players. One of them will sit and hold his position a lot more. And um, as you mentioned, as the team um, sort of builds up and moves into attack, the three sit back and the, the asymmetry is on the left-hand side. That is where the main attack comes. And the, the right back will tuck in and become a sort of third centre-back. And he's more of like a, I guess he's in these categories, like the central defender group, the possession-orientated defender. So Dalsgaard's involved in build-up and holding that sort of position on the right-hand side. And he does link up and get forward occasionally, but uh, getting on a bit now and his legs aren't what they used to be. He's much more sort of holding the shape, especially that defensive shape, and um, making sure that uh, there's yeah there's sort of an overload of numbers back in that back line. You never sort of get outnumbered, and there's always an extra man if someone's playing a two or if there's a three. Um, pull one of the centre-backs, uh, sorry, one of the defensive midfielders back as well. Mm. This brings us quite nicely, actually, to a question that was sent in from Davis, um, talking about the, our opinions on sorting players by playing style and roles. Now, obviously, this will bring us into um, to, on to talk about uh, Emiliano um, and and the way that he often perhaps gets unfairly abused because um, of, of a misunderstanding of his role. Um, so, I wondered if you could. Uh, maybe expand on this a little bit this notion of sorting players by um, thinking in terms of role rather than necessarily position yeah so this has been going on for a while now I, I think maybe a way to describe it is simple sort of left back midfielder striker um, these kind of terms aren't really describing what players do on the pitch it's they've long been redundant now haven't they you're not really explaining you're not really explaining what they do so a striker might a striker might sort of drop deep and press uh, in the first line um a centre-back might actually step forward and be sort of one of the most important parts in build-up. And a left-back, as we were just talking about, Enrico Henry, could be really heavily involved uh, in the attacking phases. So you're looking more at roles. And I think midfield is this really important, actually, because midfield itself is split into so many different facets. You could have uh, a deep-line midfielder, you could have sort of an attacking midfielder who turns into a, a false nine or a ten, or what Brentford have is actually sort of two eights who play ahead of the uh, number six, a deeper midfielder. So this is where Marcondes fits in. He's um, uh, he's one of the two eights ahead of uh, Christian Norgard or Janelt, whoever plays there. And his role itself is, I think, probably, I'd say, misunderstood and probably underappreciated because... If you look at him as a midfielder, you think maybe, what is he, an attacking midfielder? Is, should he be scoring goals? Should he be creating goals? Uh, should he be running up the pitch? What, what What's his actual output and what should he be doing? So hmm. it's quite hard to probably categorise him in the sense of just think calling him a midfielder. He's probably a bit more than that. And probably a better way to describe him using the um, the Alfonso Davies uh, role models is probably something like an offensive, uh, offensive central progressor. So the description behind that is like players who play box to box, uh, box to box, often carry the ball forward, uh, play progressive passes, and sometimes shoot or play balls into the box themselves. So it's quite uh, it's quite an all round role. And within Brentford's midfield, the sort of two eights 
the other alongside him could either be Matthias Jensen or Josh De Silva. And Marcondes is very different to those two players. So I think that's what's key as well. It's sort of having variety and good balance in the midfield mm. and then a multiple of skills coming together to make you quite hard to beat. So if you think of De Silva, De Silva loves to run with the ball. He can be anywhere. Uh, he likes to pick it up deep, travel forward with it or start up in the first phases of play or just end up on the box. He's very much a, a progressor with the ball at his feet. Obviously, he can pass as well, but his favourite uh, his favorite kind of trait is, is travelling with the ball at long distances. Jensen is a little bit more, sort of, I guess, cuter in his positioning. He'll sort of drop square and offer himself in the build-up. Um, he'll drop behind the ball and he'll pick it up off the defenders. He, he's quite comfortable at doing all of those things. Um, but yeah, offering himself in the midfield areas. But Marcondes is slightly different to, compared to all of those, is that because he has played as a striker and because he has played as an, as an attacker... He is quite happy to just let the others uh, work in the build-up phases and then move forward himself and become an extra person in the forward line. So mm. if you think about playing sort of back threes, back fives against just Tony or Mbemba on their own, it's not enough to disrupt them. So you need another player that's going to come forward and make an extra number up there or just confuse or pull another player out of position because the back mm. three is trying to block in the half space, isn't it? So Marcondes is really clever at positioning himself up in that front line or just slightly behind uh, as a as the advanced eight and causing causing teams problems like that. And it's not really a surprise that actually since Marcondes hasn't been in the team, Brentford have looked quite static with a lot of midfielders who look quite samey and struggled with getting mm. the ball into the final third. Well, let's let's give this question some a uh, little bit more flavour because um, we have had some questions sent in about Marcondes, which I think really help us um, to advance this discussion. So Mick um, slipped into your DMs and said, do you think it's a coincidence that 10 of Tony's 12 goals have come with Marcondes on the pitch and that the team didn't score in over four hours of play between him leaving the pitch against Swansea and coming on against Barnsley. And then we had another question from Brett Duncan who said, Brent Duncan, sorry, who said, my question really revolves around the other social media villain, Marcondes, similar to the Canos discussion on the October pot. Could you guys explain his tactical role? How is he performing statistically? I've noticed that he makes runs in the channel between the striker and the winninger. These runs seem to be triggered in possession whilst the ball is being passed around the back. Are these dummy runs to create space for Tony to come short and receive the ball? I haven't seen any passes to Marcondes from the centre-halves. How is he playing off the ball? He seems to press up the field more than his counterparts, usually De Silva. Is he effective? Um, so plenty of uh, <laughs> things to get our, our, our uh, lips around here. Let's start off with that first question then, because it is, uh, I think, a notable stat that uh, Marcondes leaves the pitch against Swansea and then you have four hours of play where um, there was just no scoring whatsoever so how do you explain that? I, I think this kind of alludes to Marcondes's importance so if we think about those games sort of Swansea a draw against Swansea is at the beginning of November um, he goes off so there's half an hour in that game say and then Brentford go almost uh, three full games without scoring a goal which is pretty incredible and uh, statistically sort of even like XG produced in those games it's it's really low there's a really tight game against Borough where the game looks really samey um, nothing there's not really any big chances in that game Borough really controlled Brentford quite I wouldn't say easily they worked hard to do it but it didn't look like anything was going to cave in terms of goals and it, it probably needed a player to play a advanced ahead of uh, Janelt, Jensen and um, De Silva and it, so it was missing missing someone like Marcondes to to sort of give a bit of variety to the midfield. Um, Wickham was also pretty poor in terms of in terms of sort of getting the ball into the final third and actually making it stick and sort of build attacks from there. There's no one really on the edge of the box to to sort of hold on to the ball and play it into the box. It, it in the end it just got really really long sort of deep balls being played forward to Tony and four. So again you're missing a player to sort of connect and and join in and and Bemo's been struggling on the wings to do that even though he has got a number of assists so far but he wasn't really connecting with Tony in that sense and and helping the team get forward. So it's it's not really a surprise that Brentford are struggling without Marcondes because he is the only player in the midfield that kind of offers what he does that that ability to get into the forward line and and put himself in advanced areas whilst the others are focusing on building up and moving the play forward. Um yeah, so there's loads to it. It's a re- it's a really interesting question I think something else that's quite interesting actually which we should just note now is just just simply this season expected goals created whilst uh, so with and without Marcondes so whilst Marcondes is on the pitch Brentford average per 92 expected goals which is pretty strong without Marcondes Brentford are averaging 
one expected goal per 90. And that's 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 double the amount. So if you're thinking about teams against Brentford, teams are averaging around one, um, sort of about 0.8 expected goals per game against Brentford. There's not much give between what we're creating, what we're conceding without Marcondes. So he seems to be a bit more of a link between Brentford doing well and Brentford doing poorly than people would understand. And it's borne out in goals as well. So just looking at this season... Um, uh, Mick actually picked this up as well. Mick, um, I think he did ask a question earlier, actually. He was asking about Marcondes' influence. And um, if we think about Brentford's starts, 20 goals they've scored this season. So 15 of them have come when Marcondes is on the pitch and five of them have come when he hasn't been um, playing, um, which is quite stark. That's three times as many goals are scored when he's on the pitch. And it's difficult to just attribute goals like that because it could be uh, the, the sort of best teams playing or you're starting games at your strongest point and then he's coming off and you're easing up and controlling games out but we, we know it's not as simple as that Brentford have had some really tight games and they've had to wrestle these back so defensively Brentford are pretty much a similar team with and without him there's nothing really shining out there the, the, the defensive structure works when he's not there or not it's just the attacking phases look to be quite limited without Mark Unlis on the pitch mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think as well, if you look at the teams that we're talking about this month as well, you, you know, the, the the draws have come against teams where, with the exception of Swansea, obviously, who I think are looking quite good um, per the league this season. But nil-nil draws against Borough and Wickham, um, you know, it's not as though those are teams that you would be expecting to, to maybe eke out a draw against. Those are teams that you would want to be creative against. And um, I, I suppose when you look at the underlying numbers there and balance that off against the, that fact that, you know, these are t- these are games where you really want to be creating um, decent XG. Um, there is certainly something in, that will make you worried about Mark Andres not being in the in the team if if he has that such such an important uh, impact on your creativity. He does seem to be a player that plays a couple of games, then disappears, then plays a couple of games, then disappears. So we don't really know how much... He, he's 25 now, and I think uh, he is... You, you, you tend to expect him now to be able to play more in a row than he does. And there might be something that we, we're quite not aware of, and he has something niggling which he has to manage. Or But he's not a player that you're seeing playing 10 games in a row. He's... He's a player that has an impact, then you don't see him for a while and then he comes back in. So Brentford need to find a way to sort of be better without him. But also, it's maybe it isn't that. It's actually they need to find a way to sort of get him on the pitch more often. Because just looking at some of his numbers for last season, I, I guess last season was his breakout season. And this is why it's probably really hard to remove Marcondes from success and why he's probably really underappreciated. So uh, in 1920... Um, he played uh, 1,255 minutes with Brentford in like the regular season, which is quite an impressive total. Um, he's been at Brentford for four years. None of those seasons prior, he played anywhere near that. He sort of played second fiddle to to loads of midfielders: Sawyer's, McEachern, Mococcio, Yanaris, McLeod. Loads of midfielders have been at the club before him, and he sort of had to bide his time. And he sort of played these cameos in really bad cup matches and cup teams where the B team would turn out, and he'd be he'd be associated with the negativity of these sort of third round losses and second round losses here and there. And also, the formation back then was probably a three four three, which didn't entirely suit him. So he had to bide his time, but uh, he did. And last season was Brentford's best ever season for an, a hell of a long hell of a long period we got to the sort of semi-finals of the playoffs uh, sorry the finals of the playoffs and were really not promoted on a bit of a technicality West Brom stuttered over the line and uh, a Joe Bryan world worldy free kick hit catches rare out and Brentford lose uh, a playoff final so him being so heavily involved last season playing so many minutes and like sort of quite integral to the best ever season shows that he's quite an important player as well. And let's not forget, actually, as well, during last season, he went and played 900 minutes for Mittyland and they went on to win the league in, in Denmark, which is also quite incredible. So I think um, I feel like a bit of a vigilante walking along the streets of Brentford, sort of fighting the battle <laughs> for these underrated players. But Marcondes is not spoken about in the level of importance that he actually is to Brentford. He's he's a far more important player than anyone would give him credit for. And I think people are subtly starting to realise. It's probably different to Canos because last week, sorry, last month we spoke about Canos and um, mm. Canos has been at Brentford for a really long time and he has received a little bit more flack of late because people are starting to question his importance. And he's been a misunderstood player for a very long time and probably thought better than he was because of the level of the team, whereas the team's improved so much now, he looks a little bit out of his depth. But Marcondes has only really been around when the team's been at its peak and he's fitted in quite well. So slightly different uh, sticks to beat these players at. Marcondes is definitely in a different 
league of importance to the team than Canos. Mm. I'm really interested to talk actually about just the the way that Marcondes fits in with respect to your three central midfielders because watching the games that I watched in prep for this uh, podcast it is really fascinating looking at how you use your midfield three uh, obviously I spend a lot of time watching Leeds and um, the the way that you guys set up is is obviously very different to the way that the Leeds play even though there are a lot of similarities in, in terms of the ways that we create chances I'd say um, so maybe it would be good for you to to talk about the the relationship between the two eights and and the six it, felt, it feels to me like there's a lot of fluidity in that in that three um, as as has been mentioned quite a bit so far in this podcast um it feels as though Emiliano sort of is very quick to press forward uh, out of that that um three to make it a two um it feels as though there's flexibility between um De Silva and and Marcondes to switch from side to side and even with um I, I guess it would uh, normally be Norgard but Janelt in in recent games as well the ability for him to sort of move out of out of uh, rotation in that three-two and and press in certain situations as well. So I'd be really interested to hear your opinion on the way that the three function in your midfield. Marcondes is, yeah, I kind of mentioned it before. Marcondes is a really clever player and he positions himself up the field subtly and waits for the ball in space where some other players wouldn't find themselves. So spoke about sort of how clever he is at getting into the front line, but. In the midfield area during build-up, we've got other players who like to take responsibility to drop deeper and pick it up in the sort of the, the beginning parts of the middle third. Marcondes will wait in the next line ahead of that for the ball, and he'll connect quite well with sort of Mbemo or or someone if he's on the left as well. So switches between two sides it could be Mbemo or it could be Canos or or sort of Fosu on the left or right wings. So I guess it's more forming the triangles further up the field up upfield than sort of the deeper areas. So one of the points in the questions. Uh, were it's something on the lines of they don't see Marcondes picking the ball up from the centre backs as as much or as regularly as or if at all compared to De Silva and Jensen and that that's not entirely true so sometimes he will rotate deeper into into the the sort of deeper spaces and and pick the ball up from the centre backs and start play but it just doesn't happen as often he's much more the person that sort of works to get the ball into the final third and staying on the right hand wing the difference so you you, you noted Lee's Lee's build up heavily down the wings and there's lots of Mm. as soon as the right back or right winger gets it there's that one two and then it's a bombing run forward and then there's the overlapping run Brentford are slightly build up a little bit more infield more in the half spaces you think of the channel up and down the field they don't quite the midfielders and the full backs don't quite move over to the wings as much it's a little bit more narrow and um, they just like to play the game up and down the pitch in those half spaces there so that's where they'll find themselves so it could be that coming deep if it's Joshua Silva dropping into the left or right deeper half spaces, you'll have Marcondes ahead of him or connecting well just to form a triangle on those wings and not keep the ball out there, but move the ball out there as the team move up the pitch. So it's it's subtle differences. I think it's more preference. And I also think it's to do with pace as well. Brentford don't quite have the pace that Leeds have out wide. So it's more um, confusing teams, making them think you're going to go out wide, but you're not quite pulling a team out wide and then actually you come back in and then you can mm. move ahead advance. So... Yeah, just a really clever player and um, clever in his positionings and what he can do. And I, I think a lot of his forward play has helped this. So he's played uh, as a number nine for Nordisland. He's played as a six in Denmark mm. as well. He's done. He's played multiple positions. And yeah, it's it's anything other than calling him a very intelligent player seems um, uh, seems mis- uh, sort of wider the mark. Mm. And by memory, he played quite a lot as an outside forward as well last season as well. Yeah, yeah. So he filled in out there too. That's um, as uh, as the sort of the, the toil of well yeah the season got long and um it was sort of felt like a game every other day I don't think I yeah I don't know how I coped with it I just always think about the players struggling but there were games thick and fast and he filled in just multiple positions and got a couple of goals like really important goals late in the season as well um picked up seven assists last year too and just a very versatile yeah sort of very versatile clever player and this is another thing that's quite interesting as well from the Leeds perspective I think there's another player at Leeds who probably is underappreciated and it's probably click and maybe later in in the latter phases of his last few years I mean he he's a lot older than Marcondes a lot physically stronger and um, probably a little bit quicker as well but the amount of games he plays and it's just this link between uh, what, what do you lose I think he can play a deeper role but I, I guess when he's not there you you might lose the connection between sort of what happens in the midfield area to get into the forwards and it's, it's not so much the case because of how much you build up down the wings but that that link and that smoothness of transitioning the ball forward Probably doesn't look quite as quite as good when he isn't there. Well, he doesn't actually miss games, so I don't know how you <laughs> how you attribute that. 
Yeah, and it, I think that's a really interesting link as well because with click you get that build-up play down the wide areas as well. You know, our eights do shuffle across into wide areas to help in that build-up and we essentially just vacate the central spaces entirely. But um, I get the same impression from Mark Andes as well and he's just, he's quite a fluid player. He's quite happy to move out of what you would think of as being his position and help in build-up phases as well. So uh, I, I can see that, that link um, um, making a lot of sense. Okay, so let's talk about Mbemo then, because um, we had a question from Will Olsop on Twitter. He said, do you reckon Mbemo is going to bounce back from his current goal drought? Um, so we've talked about uh, a player who's contributed to goals. Um, Brian Mbemo is a player who maybe you would want to see more goals from. Five assists so far is excellent, but are we going to see similar numbers as last year without Watkins and Ben Rama for him to play off? So what's your take on Brian Mbemo this season? I think really he's had a difficult season. Um Last year, it was obviously the BMW, Watkins and Ben Rama taking a lot of the flack and so much went down the left-hand side in sort of the early phases of play and just dominating teams and just patrolling that left wing. And I think he got a lot of benefits and I think he got 16 goals last year. And a lot of his success was because of the hard work that went on in that opposite wing. So that that dominance down the left has completely gone now. That's not there anymore with Canos coming in, um, with Tony. Tony doesn't like to stray into the left areas. He, he stays central. He's not uh, he's not really a roaming forward. He just works in the centre space. He's a bit more like Morpai. So Mumbemo's just involved, far more involved than he would be. And um, he, he just gives off the impression that he's absolutely knackered. But I, I think last season over performing in the way he did hasn't helped him at all. So sort of 16 goals in his first season and outperforming expected goals and expecting expected assists it it kind of gives you this impression that you've got this Finnish player who is uh, yeah just ready to dominate the league and should be in the Premier League but because of the way he did perform it's probably given him a bit of an issue this year because he's had a little bit of a bump down to earth and yeah it's it's a difficult it's a difficult spot because he's playing okay, but there are moments where, and this is just what you get with young players, where his touch looks too heavy or or he's in a tight space and he tries to do too much or his weak foot, instead of sort of placing something, he'll he'll just try and put his foot through it and beat the keeper in the roof of the net and just a sort of decision-making and frustration with himself. So he, he is struggling a little bit, but he, he's an important player for Brentford because he isn't going anywhere and he needs to he needs sort of support and... Um, and to kind of get his head straight because he is the player that gets the closest to Tony. So last season we saw the left um, sort of Embrema and Watkins rotate in their sort of advanced areas on the left. This year it's more Tony and uh, Embrema getting close together as a front two, and the the left yeah. side's a little bit deeper. So this is well, this is partly why Brentford are struggling a little bit because Embrema is the one sort of in the forward line and shots are falling too, and he's being asked to create and and be involved more heavily sort of in as a pivot up there and. It's not quite working for him. So, yeah, I, I think it will come. In terms of last season, I'd be very surprised if he replicated or got anywhere near last season's numbers. I, I can't see that happening. But it could be that he has a good break or or, or he sort of recuperates and, and pulls pulls something back. But I think it will be a much, much more steadier season in terms of him. But knowing knowing this, he'll probably go and score a hat-trick this weekend. So <laughs> you just never know. Mm. There's plenty of questions we could talk about, actually, when it comes to um, your forward line. Um, obviously, in a in a month where you had four hours where you didn't finish, um, there's going to be questions about about the goal scoring. Um, so yeah, where should we go? We can talk about a number of things. We can talk about um, the the role of Ivan Tony um, in in your team. Uh, perhaps an over reliance on Tony. You've you've mentioned. Um, I see that you've mentioned Pat Bamford as a as a correlate there. So maybe let's start with Tony and talk a little bit about one. Do we do you feel as though bees rely too much on Tony? Uh, and two, I guess we could come back and then talk a little bit about this. Um, switch to four four two that everyone seemed keen on so that it could get Marcos Force into the into the side but it hasn't really seemed to work. So let's talk about Tony first. Um what's your take on Tony this month? I think he's had a little bit of um uh well he has. He's had a quieter month than sort of before, which is not hard. It was probably it looked like it was always coming. Everything he was sort of hitting was going in. He was converting at sort of like eighty percent shot rate and um yeah he's he was ridiculously hot. Um as Mark Honders has dropped away, which we've spoken about, I think he's, his powers have looked a little bit uh, sort of reduced. But he's a really hard-working forward, incredibly hard-working, and I, I think he's 
going to make some of the issues I think with his game. So he he's not as he doesn't have the ball carrying ability of Watkins. He wasn't a winger in his previous life. Um, he doesn't have the tight control. He's not as not as good in sort of building up or laying balls off. But he's re- he's incredibly strong and he's good at manoeuvring his body and he's good at sort of directing things towards goals. So he's he's actually sort of dug Brentford out of many a hole. And his last couple of goals have been really well worked headers, which. Um, Watkins did quite well but Tony looks like he's in another league altogether and sort of heading so yeah he, he's a really important player I, I think just going back to the four four two stuff so there's a big cry to sort of get Force and Tony onto the pitch together which is fascinating because it's it's it just seems really lazy in the sense of what how do Brentford score goals where they just get it up to the front two and then they just bang it in the net and it doesn't really work like that so you need to you need control somewhere and, and Brentford's control is dominating the ball in the middle of the pitch and then moving it out wide and then coming back in and slipping players through and, and, and cutbacks and you can't really do that stuff if you play with two strikers because you give up part of what was controlling sort of behind in the pitch. So I, I wasn't ever a fan of them playing in a four four two. I, I saw a three five two working better because mm. Um, you can still have a Marcondes on the pitch. Like Marcondes isn't going to play in a two-man midfield. Um, it's not going to work for him. He wouldn't doesn't really have the legs for that to get up and down. So if you if you remain with three midfielders and then you have two forwards of Tony and Force, then then some things might work. But Frank likes to go with a three-four-three. So we saw the experiment of Force and Tony, and it didn't look pretty. Brentford lost all control in the game, and Wickham actually started dominating the shot count, and I think they ended up pretty similar on XG with Brentford, which is just uh it's quite baffling in a way actually it was a really strange game and um anyone kind of uh, anyone sort of really excited about those two playing together probably got a bit of a wake-up call in terms of sort of how Brentford score goals and what what it takes to score goals at, at this level it's not just a case of just firing it to them there's um there's much more tech to, uh, sort of tactical that goes on in in that phase yeah I mean I'd be interested on your thoughts on whether or not you are worried about Maybe not the over-reliance on Tony, but the fact that goals don't really seem to be coming from anywhere else. Um, in the league in November, you scored four goals. Um, three of them were scored by Tony, mm. and the other one was scored by Janelle, which is a position I guess you wouldn't be expecting that goal to come from. And it was it was a lovely goal, but um, it, it does feel as though you are going to have to have a little bit more diversity in terms of your goal scorers if you're going to have a successful season, right? Absolutely, yeah. There's no way that Tony can carry on sort of burden, yeah, this burden on his shoulders for for too much longer. I'd have thought that he himself might, um, well, physically he could be tired. Um, he he could sort of go through a really unlucky period, like all forwards do. It's it could be that his next five games that he sort of starts hitting the post. Um, uh, sort of scuffing shots there could be something that drops away with him so there is a huge over-reliance on Tony at the moment yeah it's, it's in the expected numbers it's in the goal tally if there's anything wrong with sort of getting the ball to him or anything in the team sort of drops away because it does feel like it's quite precarious at the moment I think um, Brentford's dominance over other teams in the league is still there they're still a heavily dominant team I think there's only been twice just looking at Infogol's model that um, Brentford have been on the wrong side of XG so the dominance over other teams is still there, but creativity is definitely down. So non-shot XG shows a little bit more of where Brentford are struggling. So it's the balls in and around the box, sort of the creative moments before shots, just anything outside of shots, basically. Brentford are really mm. just looking like a mid-table team. And when you take Ben Rama, when you take Watkins, and then you, you sort of reduce Mark um, and Bemmer a little bit, you're you're kind of left with, well, a lot of shots leave your team. So... Uh, there'd be games where Ben Rama would have five, six shots. Um, there'd be games as well on top of that where uh, Watkins would be pulling in with three shots as well and then Mbwema a couple of shots as well. Brentford are, are not that team this year. There's there's Tony's shots and there's not really too much else at the moment. So it could be that the the team is still, yeah, the team is still trying to click and come together, but there does need to be some goals and there needs to be more effort in some other areas because at the moment, uh, yeah, the, the over-reliance on Tony looks... Um, it looks too much of a burden at the moment to, to sort of continue and be a, a maybe a promotion-winning season. Uh, the player that we talked about a lot last uh, last month was Sergi Canos. Um, and I noticed that um, in the two wins of November, Fosu started ahead of him um, against uh, both those sides, so against Barnsley and QPR. Mm. Um, I guess that's fairly damning for Canos. So what's your take on that? Is it is it time for Fosu to, to uh, maybe take his place in the starting eleven? Yeah, I, I think if I was picking the team, I think Fossey would have played a while ago. But um, there's probably a little bit more pragmatism around uh, selection than that. But yeah, it, I don't think that's a coincidence either. But 
it's it's really hard to to say yes and no in that answer, I guess, because when Fossey was on the pitch, QPR were at their strongest, and they they were. It was only really once the tactical changes came that um, that Brentford got stronger. So, yeah, I, I think as a team aesthetically and sort of building up on that left-hand side, Brentford looked better when Fossu was there. Fossu holds on to the ball. He's more intelligent as a player. He doesn't give it away as easily. Um, I think if he had Sergi Canos's minutes that Canos has had this season, I think Fossu would have um, probably a couple more goals to his name. Well, Sergi hasn't scored. He's barely hit the target in um, sort of all of his shots. But I think Canos would, uh, Fossu would have a couple of goals and probably a couple of assists to his name. And I think his sort of expected numbers would look a lot better than Canos's. Um, I think when Fossey plays as well, there's a better connection on that left-hand side and not everything goes down the right. And it's not so much a reliance on that on Mbemo performing and he gets a little bit of space as well. I think he had better games against QPR and uh, Barnsley. And I don't think that's... I don't think it's a coincidence that Fossey played in the left-hand side was a lot better. So, yeah, pretty damning in the sense of the team wins as soon as he... as soon as Canos doesn't play. But there's probably a little bit more to it than that. Mm. We have a question which ties a lot of all of this together in terms of the, the finishing side of things. So Simon Radford writes, we seem to be top or near the top of the Justice League, but we're not near the top of the League League. This is, I presume, because we have more XG than G, <laughs> as our defence has been pretty strong. Uh, the main moan we hear, and I'm probably guilty of this too, is that we're not creating as much without Saeed Benrama. But if that was the case, surely our XG would be lower. So what is going on? Is it midfielders and wide men missing goals they should be expected to score? Is it creativity that we're really lacking? Or is it simply that we need to, to hope that Fosso is better finisher than Canos <laughs> or that Hodos finds his shooting boots? So what's your take on this? It might be good to start off by um, covering what, what it is the justice table is and how they are uh, built up. But I think it's a good question. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. It's um, yeah, really observant, I think. Um, yeah, so justice leagues and tables—they're basically just trying to—they're just trying to work out a table based on sort of team strength and the the mode of choice is shots and um, yeah, the most sort of an expected goals table can look at your supremacy over other teams and how much you're dominating them and then you can attribute uh, the points within a win, so three points. Um, or sort of one point or a draw, depending on the dominance of XG, you can just um, build a table from that working backwards. So it's quite it's a, it's a better way to build a table because you can actually see that not all wins are equal and some wins are undeserved. And it's basically just looking at who's going to progress or who's likely overperforming or underperforming. And is there anything basically just re- removing noise from um, the standard league table? But there's just a number of different ways to do them. But we won't go into the sort of different technical ways because um, we, we don't probably don't have the space for that. And it might be an entire show on its own. But the point around um, Brentford, so he's. Yeah, it's, this is a common theme for Brentford. So uh, more go- more XG than goals, which is or more XG than G to give it its proper um, proper label. Uh, yeah, so this is this is Brentford all, all over. So Brentford have been said to be sort of gaming XG in the past. I've heard someone say that to me because um, coaching is so linked to sort of the statistical side of the game. So if you think about where you create the highest value chances from, it's those cutbacks from sort of the inside of the area. It's balls across the box. It's it's not shooting from outside the box. It's getting the ball up the field and creating sort of high value efforts. And this is where Brentford have been successful for so long now because they, they kind of cracked that before a lot of other people and they built that into their coaching methods. So the, the training pitches will look like, um, it will just have the right squares in the pitches where you need to play and where you need to do different things in different zones. So a lot of other teams aren't really, or a bit slow to catch on with this, but Brentford were one of the early adopters and, and picked this up quite quickly. And yeah, really it's how they took the championship by storm for such a such a poor, poor team. Obviously not poor now, but... Is how they built it up. So he points out that, uh, yeah, he sort of says what's it, what's going on, like sort of why why are Brentford where they are? And uh, I guess the best way to answer it is, I, I sort of said it before, dominance over other teams is still there and I think it always will be. So it's not really where we should be looking, I guess, in a sort of shot expected goals because Brentford are always going to create more chances and better chances than opposition. It's just generally going to happen. It's going to happen sort of 80 80 percent of the times it already is at the moment i think it's like 90 percent of the time so beyond that so if you if you're creating shots and you're creating better shots but what else are you doing so if we move a step back um sort of the non-shot actions like how many times are you putting the ball into good areas and uh are you, are you doing that repeatedly or are you just 
be are you being more efficient for instance and you're just creating one or two really high value moments and suppressing the other team to, to nothing so it could be that previously Brentford were creating three xg and the and the opponent was creating one but now it could be that Brentford are creating on average two xg per game and the, the opponent's creating 0.5 so you're easing back but also the opposition are being eased back as well so the dominance is still there but the main the main point about Brentford this season is losing sort of Ben Rama and a lot of his passes around the box, a lot of his shots. Um, Watkins was also another shot monster, um, very creative as well because of his previous play, sort of being a winger. And creativity is just down, and it's down in statistically as well. So non-shot XG, as I just mentioned, Brentford were previously... Um, so last season, Brentford actually were ahead of Leeds in Leeds' promotion season. If you think about Leeds, the, the most creative team and create sort of the most chances and a number of high value efforts and just volume um, quality they're all there but Brentford actually finished um, 538's non-shot XG model ahead of Leeds which is a pretty incredible feat and it's it's something you'd hope would continue into this season but it, it just hasn't Brentford have moved down now I think they're sort of um, they're about sort of mid-table in like a non-shot XG table which is it's quite damning in a way because it shows that uh, there is an over-reliance on Tony being really good in front of goal. So when he does get a chance, he needs to put it away. And it, it shows that there's not the cre- the same level of creativity that was going on previously when when Brentford got all the way to the, to the playoff final. So something really needs to change or something sustainable underlying-wise needs to be developed. Otherwise, when Tony calls off, Brentford could call off as well. Yeah, Far be it for me to be a pedant, but you have sorted your non-shot XG table by non-shot XG goal difference. It puts <laughs> Leeds, Leeds behind Brentford, but actually in terms of total non-shot XG, Leeds were slightly ahead. So um, I'll fight that. But I'll, I'll, I'll fight that battle and then leave it. But uh, I do think all, all of that stuff is really fascinating, and um, I think that this is what we're going to start seeing now. These these sorts of models which try to assess um, how much more dangerous teams could be um, above and beyond their sort of base xg rates um so it'll be interesting to see how how these numbers develop going forward right a couple of uh, topics to talk about let's talk about firstly um you wanted to mention brentford's tactical statistician uh, bernardo cueva um talk to us about him i don't know anything about him so um i'm, I'm entirely at your mercy for this yeah similar area then I, I don't know too much about him either i think it's um it was an interesting role advertised a few months ago and um, it, yeah, had huge outcry on social media, sort of people fascinated by the position and thinking sort of Brentford are really forward thinking and not many other clubs have this type of role. And um, and yeah, it just got it kind of got me thinking as well, because during this month, as I've probably mentioned, Wickham was uh, it wasn't great at all from a tactical perspective. It was I, I guess you need to try things, but it looked really bad from sort of a thought process about what was happening and a team as weak as Wickham as well gaining such dominance throughout a game because of a tactical decision just got me thinking about sort of where that where that decision comes from and then the basis behind that and the the, the proving that it could work so it just yeah I think it's just quite interesting to think about um, Bernardo Cueva and his role and what he does at the club so yeah if I was to ask you John what would you say so Lees have just hired a tactical statistician. You don't know too much about the job spec. Um, what would that What would that role say to you? What would you think? With What would you think that was? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I feel as though of all of the managers in English football, Marcelo Bielsa is probably the the guy who's closest to this. He's closest to having these sorts of employees on board. Um, for me, a, ta- a tactical statistician would be someone who is aware of tactics who can use stats to back up what they're saying tactically um a bit more of a crossover position perhaps than maybe Marcelo Bielsa has um I suspect Bielsa just sort of has um tactical analysts who work for him and then and then obviously they use various um consultancies and I think they'll be bringing in some statisticians as well Uh, but I do know that the the one of the big questions that has to be raised I think if you're working in statistics is uh, and you'll hear the, the sort of old cliches about data being pointless unless you have a context for that data, is to bring in someone who understands the way that the, 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 those data are um, uh, f- sort of fit in together with what you're trying to do. So it's all well and good. Like, you've already mentioned it sort of briefly there. You know, it, Just because someone's XG goes down doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing if you're 
consequently bringing down the XG against uh, for your team as well. Um, and so I think that's what when you have a, a player, uh, sorry, when you bring in an employee like a ta- tactical statistician, what you're looking for is precisely someone who can take the stats that are being pumped out and can apply them uh, a little bit more practically. Uh, a little bit more applied so I, I would almost see them as like an applied mathematician mm. right you're not just a straight up analyst you are someone who's able to take the analysis that's being done and say well actually have you thought about this have you thought about the fact that um, you're analyzing this metric but there's a, there's a structural reality behind what we're doing which helps us to understand better why that might be the case so a metric that seems good perhaps may not be as good as you think or maybe a metric that seems bad may not be as bad as you think and it also will help you to to, to do um, stuff like recruitment right so if you're looking for a certain players you need to understand as we talked about the right at the top of this podcast about um, the roles that players are playing and then you have to determine well how are those roles going to translate into um, st- st- statistical um, uh, information how are we going to try and find those players using the numbers uh, and I think that's where you need someone like a tactical statistician to come in but I don't know if any of that rang true for you but that's that's kind of what I would imagine it being a sort of crossover position between the um, overt um, st- statisticians that are working at the club and then the overt coaching staff at this club as well yeah absolutely yeah that all sounds bang on to me I think I think I'd back all of that up um you've got sort of lots of data in football now and I think harnessing it and making sense of it and then applying that to the, the sort of coaching side is, I think it's Brentford have probably done it really well for a, pre, uh, a period of time, but I think they need to step it up again. And the only thing I'd probably add to what you said as well as another way to, another extension of it, I guess, is it's not always, it's not always looking at your own team as well. I think it's probably being broader and looking at what's successful in other areas as well, sort of other scopes of football. So maybe other leagues or or other div- other teams or in the up and down the division. Like so, so for instance, Sheffield United have gone up in the last few years. Why have they gone up and we've not? Or, or Leeds, why have they gone up and we not? So I think there's a real core element of looking at your own team and seeing what you can do. But I also think it's oh. so Cuevo has experience in coaching and, and analysis as well, and he's obviously a bit more rounded than he sounds and he obviously has the maths background as well so linking that all together but the way I kind of see it an, an extension of a lot of the things you mentioned is just what what's successful around the division or what's successful and what actually is that tiny bit that sort of separates um, a team from being sort of average and just missing out at the end or, or being more successful so you could look at basically the, the most the richest teams obviously play in a certain way don't they they all play high possession football they um they have the best players, they can pluck whoever they want out of the world and they play a certain way. But are there other ways that are successful with slightly a slightly lower rung of player? And I, I think that's where he would come in. And I, I'd expect him to be producing models and saying that actually three five two is successful because of this reason here, because you can get two fours into the front area and then you can get the wingers to join in. So it turns into a front four or other things like sort of qualifying those kinds of arguments and saying and what I wouldn't want him to hear or I wouldn't want him to say is actually 442 can work but you need to do it you need to play it in a way that Norwich do it for instance a 42222 mm. and not um not sort of a 442 where your midfield is so detached and this is why that doesn't work because no one's gone up successfully like that no one dominating the playoffs has gone up like that they're actually doing this or no team in the Premier League has ever done that or stayed up like that so it's it's those um it's building those kind of arguments and then putting that onto the coaching team and um yeah building a building a stronger picture of what success mm. looks like but it's yeah it's it doesn't sound easy don't please don't yeah i don't want anyone to think that <laughs> we think we've cracked it or or it's um it's easily doable but it's just fascinating to to think about the role and think about the data sets they have and the sort of conclusions mm. and um how that can be how that can be useful yeah, it's, it's almost like what we were talking about with respect to the midfield at Brentford, right? You've got to work out what roles your players can do and, and then sort of fit those players uh, who are all playing different roles, their strengths and weaknesses to, to try and get the best out of your midfield. And that's what you'll be doing with your uh, analysis department as well. It reminds me a lot, actually, of what's going on at Milan at the moment. With So, so in their um, recruitment department, they have three analysts, one of whom is... Um, is basically the oversees the other two so he sort of brings both of them together one of them is a sort of straight up 
um, data programmer, model builder, um, able to manipulate their numbers. And then they have uh, Tiago Estevão, who you you all know quite well, a uh, Portuguese scout, but he's his job is sort of to balance between those two mm. um, points to be able to do a lot of the, the, um, the sort of traditional um, scouting stuff. So look at players and, 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 particularly the players that are thrown up by their numbers uh, and then sort of try and weed out the ones that that he thinks are, are going to be good as well and it's sort of that's what you're looking for is you're looking for someone like that who's going to be able to balance uh, between the two sides of the game the the data versus the the eye test stuff and um I think that's that's going to be really interesting to see how that develops at Brentford right I think one more question, um, and what better question to have than a question about fans being allowed back in the stadium, because next month uh, there will be fans back in uh, the stadium, the new stadium. Has it, got a, has it got a name? Is it called? It's not called the new Griffin Park, is it? Uh, it should be. That's got a really good ring to it, hasn't it? Um, catchy. <laughs> uh, it's actually called the Brentford Community Stadium. So that's okay. the official name. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful. I think Lionel Road or the new Griffin Park would have been great, but... <laughs> There's other powers that be here, and uh, yeah, they might they might get their comeuppance one day when people forget their stadium. But who knows? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's um, the Brentford Community Stadium. And so yeah, obviously there's going to be an impact, hopefully on performances. You you might think. So what's your take on on this? What's the difference that having uh, a number of fans, albeit I think only it'll be two thousand fans, will it? Um, per per game um, whilst you're whilst you're in tier two. So what what difference do you think that will make? It's hard to it's hard to know exactly, but. I think it will play a difference, actually. I think Brentford in the last sort of 12 months or the last period since lockdown have played some of the best football they've ever played and been yeah, the, the most successful team without fans. And it's hard to attribute whether that is for team strength or whether it is because the fans aren't there. So we won't know what that answer is until, A, the team gets as strong as it was and fans are back in the stadium. So it's difficult to judge. But I, I actually think fans in stadiums are a bit of a myth in terms of their use and um, their purpose and I think some teams do rely on them but a team like Brentford I don't think relies on fans at all it's not really it's not really how they play that the patterns they learn are sort of coached um, they don't need a thumping tackle and the crowd to go mad to, to get them up and start playing it's more the patterns get played and and quieter stadiums the coaches are just heard and they can have better communications with players so I, don't, I wouldn't have thought 2,000 fans would have made a huge amount of noise or difference, but in the long term, I, I would have thought that the environment was set without fans for Brentford to perform, and it, it proved that it did. It, it was quite successful. So fans coming back in is great, as football without fans isn't actually quite the same sport. But for a performance point of view, um, I'm not sure it's going to have the, the positive effect that people think it might but yeah, how about how about you and um, sort of your perspective as well? A team that's also been really successful without fans. Yeah, I think I'm with you. I, I don't think it probably makes the difference that people do think it makes in terms of impelling the team on or compelling them to victory. Um, but I do think that it will make a big difference for me as a fan, for sure. I think mm. I'm getting to a point now where a lot of professional football just sort of feels as though we're going through the motions, mm. despite the fact that I'm enjoying watching Leeds. So I, I'm struggling to watch other teams play because I just sort of feel as though it's just it just feels like a training game right and mm. um, you know you can enjoy that to a, to a degree but it having the fans there does give it another layer of meaning that I think makes it a little bit more enjoyable for me as a fan so uh, I think that's the only take I would have on that yeah I agree I, I think that that side of it where the sort of spectacle the visual spectacle the, the color that you get from it um, those kinds of things are, are hugely missing yeah and um the sooner they're back, the better, I guess. Well, we have spoken all about Brentford's last month. Um, I think it's been a bit of a been a bit of an up and down thing, but it seems as though things are now on the up rather than rather than the down. So, hopefully, when we convene again at the end of December or the beginning of January, uh, we'll have plenty of uh, exciting things to talk about when it comes to the bees. Before we end, just a few things to say. Firstly, thank you to you guys for all of your questions. I thought they were excellent questions. It's great to have them coming in. Do keep um, them flowing through when when you um, as and when you you have them. Um, it makes for a, a, a great fun for us, at least recording a podcast where there are such thoughtful questions. Beyond that, um, 
social media stuff please share bees tactical page do you follow if you're not following already and that's at bees tactical on twitter we also have a Substack, which is bees tactical.substack.com uh, and you can also subscribe to the patreon for bonus content at the patreon.com forward slash bees tactical so bees tactical is the the watchword if you want to find us anywhere search for bees tactical and if we exist there we will be there um and one final thing, please give us do give us reviews wherever you get your podcast. This makes a big difference to people coming across the podcast um, by happenstance. So that would be great too. And so here we are at the end of the podcast, David. Um, it's been great fun chatting to you as always. And here's, I suppose, to the whole of December. Let's hope that bees do well in it. Yeah, I agree. Great chatting to you too, John. Yeah, really enjoyed it. It's flown by, hasn't it? Um, yep, here's for a happy December. See ya. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.